Is the future of artificial intelligence the Terminator or the Jetsons? I'm Liberty Vittert, feature editor of the Harvard Data Science Review. On today's episode, I, along with my co-host and editor-in-chief, Shaoli Meng, are discussing all things AI, the past, the present, and of course, the future. We are speaking with Kathleen Walsh and Ron Schmelzer. They are the hosts of the ever-popular AI Today podcast and founders of the AI advisory firm Cognolytica. With Kathleen and Ron, we discuss the spread of AI in our lives, from autonomous vehicles to Taco Bell's new automatic drive through lanes. But has too much been promised and not delivered? Are we on the brink of an AI winter where development and investment cools? We look at all the possibilities of how our future will change with AI. Well, welcome, Ron and Kathleen, and thank you so much for joining us for this uh, swap of the you know podcast. And uh, uh, we have lots of questions for you, and I, but I want to start with a question. I hope it's easy to answer, relatively easy to answer, because I know you know your uh, podcast is called AI Today, and uh, obviously. I think people understand the phrase today, but they may or may not understand the phrase AI. They know it's called artificial intelligence, but what is your operation definition of AI? That probably gives people a very concrete notion of what AI is. So when we talk to people, and we've been doing this podcast, we're coming up on five years now. So we have really been able to talk to a wide variety of different people from a lot of different backgrounds, lots of different industries as well. And what we very quickly realized was that AI is more of this umbrella term. And when two people are talking about AI, you're most likely not talking about the same thing. So I can be talking about autonomous vehicles and Ron can be talking about AI-enabled chatbots. And maybe, you know, somebody else is talking about a reinforcement learning application. Yes, they all fall under that, you know, very general umbrella of AI, but they're not the same. So what we did is we came up with the seven patterns of AI to make sure that people were talking about the same thing. And if we're talking about a chatbot, that we're going to be talking about a conversational pattern. Or if we're talking about recommendation systems, we're going to be talking about hyper-personalization. So very quickly, the seven patterns, in no particular order, we say it's a wheel, so there's no start and end, but it's hyper-personalization where we're going to treat each person as an individual, recognize recognition where we make sense of that unstructured data. Also the conversation and human interaction pattern. So, you know, natural language processing elements, predictive analytics and decisions. So how we can take past or current data and help humans make better decisions with that. Our goal-driven system. So this is really around reinforcement learning, you know, finding the most optimal uh, solution to the problem. Autonomous systems. So this goal is really, you know, to remove the human from the loop. How do we get to uh, systems that humans do not need to operate in? And then patterns and anomalies as well. And so this is where, you know, you're able to take that data and make sense of it, be able to spot patterns, be able to spot outliers. So think about fraud detection, for example. And then we all we say that it's a seven plus one. Uh, there has been, especially a few years ago, a lot of confusion, hype. Uh, also marketing spin around automation. And so that's the seven plus one where automation is not intelligence. It's incredibly useful. It's done incredible things, but we like to point out that it's not intelligence, especially in the context of automation. Uh, you know, sometimes you can think about physical automation. Robots, for example, have gotten, um, I, I think, this myth around them that people think they're intelligent because you think about what Hollywood portrays. And then also taking that to software with 
software automation and in particular robotic process automation. There were some companies that hit the market. They were, uh, you know, really making waves and didn't do much to let investors or consumers know that they were they were really automation tools and not intelligence. So that's why we always say that that's a caveat. I was thinking back to the conversation that we had when we were, you guys were nice enough to have us as guests on your podcast, AI Today. And it made me think of something, Ron, I think you said as you were talking with this CIO of a Fortune 500 or 1000 company, and you asked him, what is your process for these data science projects? And he goes, you know, I don't really have one. And it seems to me that's pretty common, actually. And that what it leads to is this turning AI into this magic wand and creating hype around it and over-promising and under-delivering and really not having any actionable insights from some sort of AI strategy. So do you have, I mean, have you seen that happen a lot? Have you had examples of where, you know, it's sort of the hype of AI? Absolutely. That is one of the typical challenges of AI. We're, you know, artificial intelligence is, is actually an Usual technology in that artificial intelligence as a concept actually predates computing, digital computing. A lot of the people who were sort of the originators of artificial intelligence were also the originators of computing. Alan Turing, right, with the Turing machine and the concepts of basically building the generally programmable computer, you know, for things like breaking the Enigma code at Bletchley, was also the same Alan Turing as the Turing test, right? Um, you know, you have people like Norbert Wiener and cybernetics who are working on feedback systems and artificial intelligence. And AI came about in the 1950s. We did not have the internet, obviously. We did not have, barely had computers with kilobytes of, of data. Lucky you could get a kilobyte of data. No processing power. But we were building, even back in the 40s and 50s, we were trying to build these intelligent systems. So what happens is I think we get this in, in our mind. We have this idea of sort of like what we want AI to be, and we instantly jump to the science fiction capability of machines that can understand everything we say, that can think the way that we think, that can help us plan, not realizing that, first of all, it's very difficult. We haven't quite solved all the, the technical complexities of getting there. But from a practical perspective, you know, being there with the things that we could do, a lot of those seven patterns, which is like, hey, just give me better predictions. You know, I have all these emails and videos and images I can't process with databases. Can you give me some technology to at least do some recognition capability, classification? Yeah, the machines are pretty good at that. Spot some anomalies, do some better fraud detection. This is the here and now of AI, even if it's not the exciting uh, things that we would like it to do. We could talk a lot about sort of the failures of autonomous vehicles and whether or not we'll ever, ever realize fully autonomous vehicles. I know Kathleen likes to talk about that quite a bit. But that's part of the over-promise and under-deliver. And, well, we, we've kind of been here before, right, Kathleen? Exactly. So, you know, back in the 1950s, we got really excited. We said, what can we do? We had all these grand ideas and we fell into our first AI winter because of the whole concept that we overpromised and underdelivered on what we could do with artificial intelligence. Then we had our second wave, um, you know, in the 1980s. And this time we had governments that were investing in artificial intelligence, but also companies that were investing, you know, desktop computers became more of a thing and people had them. And so companies said, okay, well, what can we do now? We have some compute power, not, not nearly as much as we have today, but what can we do? And Again, you know, we had this idea of expert systems and people found out that they were just really brittle and that they were not 
prompt, you know, we overpromised and underdelivered again on what we could do. And so AI fell out of favor. And now we're in this new wave of AI. We like to call it an AI spring or an AI summer, but you know, like everything, there's seasons. And so we're very mindful that we can go into an AI winter again because of this idea of overpromising and underdelivering. And as you brought up earlier, when we talk to people at large organizations, it's scary to hear that they do not have, you know, basic data plans, basic data methodologies in place to make sure that they're running their projects successfully. And we get asked a lot too, you know, do you start with business understanding or data understanding? We always say, start with your business problem, because if you're not solving a problem, why are you even doing this? So let's start with that. It doesn't even matter if you have the data. Absolutely. And when you're doing that, you know, there's questions that you have to ask. And if you're not ready to move forward with the project, don't. And I think that that's also, you know, another reason why it's failing as well. Well, thank you for these, uh, you know, great insight here. And, uh, you know, one of those things, anything when something gets hot, it's there's always hype. And what are the few examples you can tell the audience here, the HDSR audience say, when you hear that, you say, ha, that's a real success of AI. You know, that is a serious success of AI, no hype. And it's really, it's a real AI. So uh, if you can share some examples, it would be great. So we always like to think about it with the seven patterns and what are examples within these patterns. It's also important to point out and note that you in your application can have more than one of these patterns. But looking at these patterns, you know, some examples that we've seen are computer vision. So in the recognition pattern, that works. And there's a lot of applications that people are using for that. Yes, there can be some you know, issues with it, and you have to make sure that you don't misuse and abuse the technology as well. But we you know, have seen lots of applications where uh, airports are using it to help check in passengers, things like that. So it can just help make that process a lot smoother. We've also seen natural language processing applications. A lot of AI-enabled chatbots, and this is really helping organizations. At Cognolytica, we always say, think big, but start small and iterate often. So when you're building a chatbot, don't try and have it answer a thousand questions all at once in 10 different languages, because that's probably going to be a little bit bigger than the, you know, you're able to handle all at once. So start with just one question. And one of uh, the, our clients it's, was the U.S. Postal Service. They actually built a chatbot to help answer just one question that they had. It was their most frequently asked question, you know, helping track a package, especially around the holidays. You can imagine and how many calls they got. So it really helped with the call volume that was coming into centers where customers no longer needed to call in and wait for you know a long mm-hmm. time. They were just able to go in and have the chatbot help them. So that's been a really powerful example of how companies can use artificial intelligence and see pretty instant results. And then we've also seen AI-enabled pattern and anomaly detection. Cybersecurity obviously is really big for this. A lot of banks are using this as well with fraud, credit card companies. So these are some really great examples of how AI is being applied today successfully. You know, it's interesting, the industries where we're seeing sort of like the most uptake of these various patterns, these companies, which you might think are fast food companies, are, are starting to invest in AI. 
why McDonald's actually acquired an AI company uh, not too long ago. And many of these companies are looking at it from Coca-Cola to, you know, uh, Pepsi and Frito-Lay. They're all, they're all becoming technology companies. It's very unusual. Uh, I encourage you to look up what the new concept is for the new Taco Bell. I know it's crazy, but it's actually a series of four drive-in lanes. There's no restaurant. Actually, the Taco Bell is above it, and it looks like you're almost driving through a bank. It's a very unusual experience. But it's sort of like all these things are, are changing sort of the adoption now of technology. I want to add some other really interesting things. We have been seeing a lot of use of natural language generation, which is the other side of the of the NLP side, which is creation of content. There's a, a model called GPT-3, which I know many of your listeners might be aware of, which is you could use a very small amount of prompt uh, information, and the system will basically create really a massive autocomplete of an intelligent thing. And people are using it for things like creating programming code. Um, you know, you can use other forms of these generative networks to create images. You could create a sketch, and it'll create something that's very photorealistic. Uh, there's a site called This Person Does Not Exist. You might be familiar with that. It's 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 pretty compelling. I have to say, you have to you have to look closely uh, to see that. These are actual success stories of machine learning and some of the narrow applications of AI. There are some cautionary tales. There are some, you know, robotics just seems to be such a hard problem. We, we, there are so many companies that get started in robotics and just fail. We love those videos from Boston Dynamics with the Atlas robot jumping and doing parkour and doing the dance, you know. Uh, does she love me and all that? But we said, hey, Boston Dynamics, if you really want to be bold, you should show those machines doing something useful. You know, they still have not shown those things like make a pizza or like, you know, deliver a package or, you know, something, right? And that's actually very telling because it turns out it's easier to train a robot to do parkour and dance than it is to deliver a pizza. And, and there's the same thing has been said a lot about autonomous vehicles, which is turns out that getting a car to drive where you're not in that front seat and the cars making decisions is a very, very difficult problem. Our compatriot Rodney Brooks from MIT talks a lot about how that's a very difficult problem. He'd be surprised to see if we have level five autonomous vehicles anytime in the next hundred years. So some of the successes and failures and, and drawbacks, I think, to call some attention to. It makes a lot of sense when you say that, you know, we, it feels like we've made these leaps and bounds, you know, with a Tesla or a self-driving car, and it feels like we've just sped forward so much, but it almost feels like to get to that next step, as you just said, it may take a hundred years, and we really aren't as speedy as we think we are. And I wanted to actually go back to something you all were talking about earlier, because I, I, I will admit I had not heard of the AI winters. And I, I just sort of wanted to to understand that a little bit more because I, I feel that, you know, in my mind, it's like, you know, this is the moment. Today is the moment for AI and for machine learning and for data science. But it sounds like not necessarily that we might have had these moments before. And maybe we shouldn't get quite as excited as as I think we should. You know, I, I was... I was just thinking back to the 1950s idea. I remember watching the Jetsons as a little kid, you know, the cartoon. And that, you know, that was what was the future, I guess, in the, I think almost in the 1950s. And, you know, is that what happened? Like, is, is the Jetsons what we were supposed to have? Is that the AI? Was that the overpromising and underdelivering that we just didn't have? Or could you talk a little bit more about that? Actually, we have a funny story about the Jetsons. Actually, Kathleen knows. We actually talked to someone about, like, is our future the Jetsons or the Terminator or something like that? So we actually had some early natural language processing capability even as far back as the 1950s and, and 60s. Um, the first chatbot was the Eliza chatbot, 1960s. 
And it was it was convincing as a chatbot. And this actually contributed to one of those first AI winters. The de- Defense Department invested a lot of money in natural language technology, in part to be able to do things like process the cables that they were intercepting from the Soviet Union back in the day and say, oh, well, instead of hiring translators or analysts, we could we could let our computing systems, you know, go through and, do, and doing it. And there's that old uh, famous uh, story how it translated this one thing that says that the, you know, it was supposed to be the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak something like that right and instead it translated as the vodka is strong but the meat is rancid and <laughs> it's like i guess literal i could i could see vodka spirit you know flesh and meat uh, but the, the intent was missing right um the funny thing is like here we are 60 70 years later and alexa is really not that much better at intent it could do a great job with the basics of text to speech and speech to text and you know, phrases, and it can understand some of that. But if you ask Alexa a question, we actually did a whole series of these, both in our research and our podcast, where we would ask Alexa the practical things, which is like, ask Alexa, this was now two years ago, we said, Alexa, how long should I put a 14-pound turkey in the oven? And our rationale was that, okay, if your hand is inside of a turkey, right, and it's Thanksgiving, and you have an Alexa over there, wouldn't that be a really convenient question to ask when you don't want to use your phone because your hand is full of turkey stuff, right? Uh, Alexa could not answer that question. Uh, And when we published it, sure enough, like six months later, now Alexa can answer that question. Coincidence? Maybe, maybe not. But um, this is part of it. But like, you know, Kathleen, we talk about, you know, is the future like Jetsons or is the future like Terminator or something else? (laughs) Yeah. And what's also interesting about the Jetsons too, is you look at it and from the outside, you're like, oh, wow, they have flying cars and they have a robot in their house doing all this stuff. But when you start digging into it, Rosie is a faulty robot. And she makes a lot of mistakes, too. Um, And then we think about the Terminator and also Westworld, for example, where it's like, you know, you have humans and these AI things that look like people. And you're like, who's real? Who's not? Can I actually determine that? So that's like what you conjure up in your head with science fiction. But what we've learned from these past AI winners is that we are a far way from artificial general intelligence because where we're stuck right now. So before we were stuck for different reasons, you know, a lot of it was over promising and under delivering, but we just didn't have enough compute power and we didn't have enough data. Well, that's been solved now. We have enough data. We talk about how it grows basically exponentially. You know, we have too much data. Honestly, people don't even know how to manage it all. And we have almost infinite and fairly cheap compute power. So those are not our limits anymore, but we're running into this limit of machine reasoning and we can't have machines reason. You know, when you guys were on our podcast, you talked about the joke, um, you know, once machines are able to actually tell a joke, then we should be concerned. And what we say too is, yes, when you think of intelligence, you think of, you know, collegiate level math and being able to speak 10 different languages. That's what we think of as intelligence. And machines are good at that for the most part nowadays. You know, they can process numbers very quickly. They can translate or understand languages fairly completely. But where they struggle is with this common sense. And so Ron had talked about how we were asking Alexa these very basic questions. And we also asked other questions too. You know, it's if it's uh, going to rain later today, should I bring an umbrella? Things like that, which you think are fairly common sense. Maybe little children know these answers. And the machines really struggle with that. And so that's where we are with the limitations. And that to us as humans, we say, well, if you know statistics, you know, and you know this advanced math, you're smart. 
that's not what challenges machines. And so I think that we also need to kind of redefine, you know, what intelligence really means and what makes us human and how these machines actually can become more intelligent. I just want to want to add one little interesting thing. Language is very imprecise. It's full of uh, you know a lot of, of of unspoken understandings in culture. So I want to ask this. It's not meant to be a quiz or anything like this, but I'll, I'll ask Liberty and Shelley. Uh, what's the closest star to the Earth? What's the closest star to the Earth, Liberty? I have no idea. Isn't like a aren't there stars that are planets? Uh, oh, no. well, the best, my, my best star knowledge is like, you know, my mother used to eat nine pizzas. To don't say anything. Don't say, I won't, but I have a story before you share the answer. Okay. And Shelly, what's the closest star to the earth? You know, I, I'm going to take a fifth on this thing. I don't want to incriminate the Harvard professor. I can't <laughs> answer the, that question. So, uh, okay. so, uh, so you're going to go like this when we tell you. Yeah, go ahead. Recently, I was asking my daughter in the car because Ron and I, this was uh, a question that we did ask Alexa and we've, we've asked others as well. And so I just decided to ask my six-year-old daughter. And she said the sun. And that's the right answer. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? It's the sun. It's the... So why why do we get tripped up with this, right? Why are we getting tripped up with like, what's the closest star? Well, it's the sun. It's right here. It's because of the imprecision of the language. That's what's tripping us up because you don't say – Look at the beautiful stars in the sky, and you're not thinking, oh, well, there's one missing. What star is not in the sky? Well, it's the sun. That's the one star that's not in the sky. But you don't, I don't know. It's like there's something about the way that we learn language that trips us up. This was one of those interesting things. I have to tell you, it kind of tripped me up, too. I was like oh, kind of overthinking mm -hmm. it, right? And there's many, many, many situations like this. And this is why systems like Alexa get tripped up. Even mm -hmm. now, if you ask it, should I put a wool sweater in the dryer? It does not give you an answer to that question. And you'd think that should, there should be. Or it gives you a wrong answer, which is worse because you're asking it because you don't know the answer, right? So if it's like, yes, you should put it in for 30 minutes. And then you're like, what? Did I gain weight? Like, what's going on? Why doesn't this fit anymore? <laughs> right. So it, it, a lot of intriguing things. Sorry. Just meant to throw that in. No, there. that's great. That's uh, that's absolutely great. I work with a group of astronomers. They're going to kill me. But, uh, oh, but, but you, should, yeah, you should ask them some questions and then ask Alexa. I'm trying to ask questions. But, but the thing is, I want to follow up on a question that we have talked a lot about the use of AI, the limitation of AI, what AI can do or cannot do. Uh, there's another really big area as we, you know, increasing people get worried about is, is things AI can do, but we don't want them to do. This is the potential, you know, damage of what AI, right? Because as we said, you know, humans, we all make mistakes, but the kind of one good thing about humans mistake most of the time that all mistakes are kind of local unless you're a leader then you make a big mistake that affects many people but AI system at least a, a computer has this potential of making a, a simple mistake affects millions of people's lives so on and so forth what are the examples you have heard or the concerns you have heard about the kind of uh, you know People worry about the AI do something, destroy the human species, you know, kind of a saying, oh, how much hype there is? What are the real concerns? What are the things are really just kind of a science fiction, that kind of a disaster movies, that kind, that kind of, uh, you know, hype as well? Yeah. You know, we actually spent our, like some of our very first episodes. I think our first episode was, should we be scared of AI? Actually, that might even been how we started all the things we just talked about. Don't be scared until it can tell a good joke. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> like, we're not, I can tell you, we're not that scared. But I would say a great notable example of when AI decision-making really can go bad was the, all the promise of AI in healthcare. 
There was a big New York Times article about IBM Watson and its overpromising in the healthcare space and the ability to do things like read radiology imagery, which honestly, there was a lot of thought in the space that's like, yeah, uh, machines are pretty good at image recognition. I mean, it could spot like a cat among a field of grass. You know, so why can't it do things like spot, you know, tumors and aneurysms and all the things you're looking for in in radiology imagery? And and a lot of it was good. The problem was. It's just like when you're trying to do a podcast transcript and you have the system do it. It's like it's that 70 to 80 percent good, but the 10 to 20 percent or 30 percent bad that causes the problems. Because if you try to trust the system too much, then the outcomes of missing something are very significant. Um, sort of like it's the it's either the false positive or the false negative, right? Depending on sort of what you're looking at with 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 image detection, and so it really went into a hard time. And one of the things we were saying it's like a, IBM actually had a very early market lead because they came out. Remember with the Jeopardy and and Jennings, and they had the machine. They were really the first company to popularize the idea that maybe we're getting into the AI age, right? And actually, IBM was there two decades earlier with the chess playing robot uh, against. Um, it was Gary Kasparov, right? 1997, Deep Blue before Deep Mind. And um, they messed up because they decided that the problem area that they were going to focus on was healthcare. And I understand that it's a big area, it could potentially help humanity, but they got stuck in all of the realities of trying to apply AI and machine learning to healthcare, which is a very, very difficult space. Could they have had better success if they had applied it to? other areas, environmental stuff. If we had focused all of our energy on, on solving some of the short term, could we have, have have provided more benefits possible? And unfortunately, it burned a lot of reputation there and, and sort of the hopes for what AI can do in healthcare are nowhere near sort of where we expected to be at this point. What we see too is this idea of augmented intelligence, where you can use the AI with the human to help make better decisions. Then you can have success. But when you're just trying to replace the you know human decision with a decision from the machine, then you can run into issues. Also, we talk a lot about you know data and people don't understand data that goes into these systems so they can get issues with that. I think there was an example of uh, ImageNet and how it had like a five or 6% error rate. And when we're talking about, you know, very, very large amounts of images, that's actually a lot of data that was incorrect. It was mislabeling a deer as a magpie, which is a bird and it's not the same size. It doesn't look the same at all. And so that can be real image, real issues, especially if you don't know what a magpie looks like, you'll just say, oh, maybe that's a type of deer or, oh, that's what this is. I didn't realize. So those can be real drawbacks as well. And then as Ron mentioned, there are some fears and concerns. And so we do need to make sure that we address that as well, because people have fear and it can be, you know, irrational maybe, but you have to make sure you're addressing that because that's very emotional to them and that's how they feel. And so you have to um, address some of those fears about, you know, AI taking over the world and AI taking over their job and it's coming to get them. Yep. Facial recognition falls into this trap, which is that it's just a technology. Is it good or bad? It's neutral. I mean, you apply it somewhere and you can apply it in a good way. Is facial recognition a good technology to unlock your phone? Well, in that circumstance, it's like either your phone's unlocked or not unlocked. If it works, it should work. Is facial recognition a good technology to identify someone as a potential criminal from imagery? Well, no. I mean, not if you understand the error rates and, and sort of like you can't trust it. 
one of the things we find, again, this is an unusual human behavior, which is that the moment somebody feels like the technology is good enough for something, they start to trust it, even if it doesn't necessarily warrant that trust. We do this all the time with GPS systems. I know I, I put stuff into Waze. I do what Waze tells me. It's usually right. You know, hopefully it's not wrong, but usually it's right. This is, of course, one of the issues where people get into these level three autonomous vehicles, you know, Tesla or something, and they're like, I'm just going to kind of sit it and forget it, not realizing that the failure mode is that when the system says pay attention, it wants you to pay attention, like right away, like autonomous system is working, autonomous system is working, oops, situation I can't handle, go, driver, take over. And you're like, well, uh, unfortunately, our brains cannot have instant attention. And so we, we may be like reading a book, you know, doing something, and then Tesla goes, autonomous mode disengaging, you have like two seconds to react or less before you head the back into a tractor. You just, we just can't respond that way. We're building systems to understand the failure mode, not understanding that the human failure mode can't deal with it. We got into this trap again. We talked about the Boeing uh, 737 MAX, uh, the crashes that were happening, because the pilots were basically entrusting a very critical aspect of flight to the machine, and then the machine would disengage when it wasn't meeting it, but the pilots just did not have the time to react. These are the real-world consequences of this decision-making, along with all the stuff that people worried about. So am I worried about the superintelligence? I think maybe as a concept, it's good to discuss. Am I more concerned about autonomous systems basically being unleashed and doing bad things uh, because we're just careless? I'm more, more worried about carelessness than intentionality. You know, given sort of all the fears and concerns that we have and all the movies all the way back from the 1950s till now, um, I'm going to steal a question that you all asked us on your podcast. And you guys, I imagine, have a lot of thoughts on it because you said you ask it all the time, over 200 times with the 200 podcasts you've done. What do you all believe the future of AI is in general and its applications You know, in the future? Is it a good one? Is it a bad one? What, what, are, what do you see the future of AI is? Yeah, you know, we do love that question and we always get such varied responses. So I I love to hear where people have to go with that. You know, personally, I look at AI and I go, where do I want it to go for me? And my dream for a long time has been autonomous vehicles so that I don't have to drive anymore because I hate driving. So it would be really nice for me. Um, but, you know, that's how I look at it as its application in the future too is how is it going to help us be better, you know, and I really like this idea of augmented intelligence. So I, how can I use AI in my everyday life to help me do better things, you know, maybe not be a better human, but just to do my job better and to get around better and make life easier. So for example, with uh, driving, you know, if I still have to drive, well, then I want to have most optimal routes and I'd like to be able to do things with ease. And so I think that we are headed there. Also, another um, thing that I found when, when we've asked people now on our many episodes is that whenever we have it, we no longer think that it's AI because it's here. And so people always think AI is something that we don't have. So I go, well, you know, I want maybe uh, predictive typing. That would be great. And it automatically checks my grammar and my spelling. And we have that now. And I think that's incredibly useful. That's a great example of augmented intelligence. But since we have it, people no longer consider it AI. And I continue to see that happening. And I think that's just something that 
we in society feel that AI is kind of this dream that we're getting to. So that's why we always like to talk about applications and say, yes, it is here and now. And that's where I'm most excited, just to see how it can continue to help us in our everyday lives move forward. Yeah, I, I think the, the future of AI is really interesting because because I, I think there's, there is this inevitability that we always try to overestimate what is possible with, with intelligent systems, given the small little glimpses of what we can do. We're like, oh, wow, we solved this pretty hard problem. You know, we were trying to solve uh, image recognition ImageNet for many years and then finally, you know, Hinton and the rest of the crew built AlexNet and they're like, oh, look what we can do with this deep learning algorithm. Now all of a sudden it's sort of like the the creative, you know, juices flow and we're like, okay, now we get all interested and venture capital jumps in and governments jump in and the next thing you know, it's this big exciting pile of everybody trying to jump in. And, and then, of course, just inevitability, you know, it's it's that <laughs> it's that wave cycle and things don't meet expectation. Then people start to sort of move on. And, I, and I, I unfortunately, I think we will have another wave. I mean, it's just unsustainable, this this level of interest. And it's just inevitable that we'll sort of get into this this area of realism. That being said, I think what is here to stay and we know is here to stay is people realize the vital importance of gaining more insight from data. And whether we're using machine learning methods for it or non-machine learning methods, I know this was a necessary question you asked, but you know, data science in and of itself, even without the visions of trying to make the intelligent machine, is incredibly useful. And, and that's what we see as sort of like the core sort of difference, if you will, between data science and AI is that data science is, is a long-term, uh, you know, in terms of it's here for the long, long haul, you know, for us to extract. We just have mountains of data. I mean, we have just infinite seeds. I don't know what I don't know what uh, analogy to use here. We just have like, you know, these are the sands of data, just infinite. And, and it is our job to basically extract from that data to take out the noise and find the signal and find the predictive value and really try to understand what that means. And that is, is here to stay. If anything that, that this latest wave of AI has taught us is sort of like that value of data. And it's actually really intriguing that we have gone through a pandemic while we're going through this AI cycle, because I think it's introduced a, a good healthy dose of, you know, realism. That's like as much as you think you understood your supply chain, just wait till a pandemic hits. You have no idea what your shortage of yeast will really be uh, or, or lumber or the fact that there will be a run on toilet paper, because honestly, who knew, you know? And so it's like, was there something, could you say, was there something in the data that could have actually given us a hint to find out that like with something like a pandemic hits, you'll have a run on toilet paper. This is really, really, really very intriguing for us. And I think that for me, you know, as much as I would love to see intelligent machines doing all sorts of intelligent things, I think natural language processing will continue to just get better and better. I, my dream is to be able to go to any country in the world, speak their native language through an application and understand their native language. We're getting closer to that. You know, I'd love to, you know, some some strange, really isolated language and have like a real conversation. That would be fantastic. And I think that could do a lot for us as as a world and a society to be able to have have that sort of dialogue. So some some visions, some hopes and dreams. Thank you so much and uh, to both of you for this incredible conversation. Speaking of data, I have a feeling that you guys have tons 
terabytes data on these just ideas from you know all these two hundred episodes, and you're developing more. And we certainly encourage or uh, you know listeners definitely uh, uh, tuning to your uh, uh, podcast. And uh, I also, Ron, particularly appreciated your uh, kind of a division for both the data science and the and the AI. And and I certainly uh, can agree. Uh, 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 what's the phrase? It's uh, agree more or disagree less. You know that <laughs> the the uh, that in the end it's all or this incredible design always want to know the things we don't know, right? Kesselin, as you said, whenever we know, we feel like okay, that's not interesting. That's just a human nature, and uh, and I think that's great as a, as a, as a species, and and we will. Uh, you know, excel uh, continuously with all these uh, uh, technology and all these advances in in in, in or methodology as well. Um, Liberty and I, we always have this kind of a last question. If you could wave your magical wand, what would be the one wish you have for the AI community to change today that for for its own betterment? Let's say maybe extend the wave a little bit longer. Uh, what would be the one thing that that you would like them to do? Excellent question. And thankfully, I think we have a pretty straightforward answer, both of us. And that is like, if we could wave our magic wand right now, it would be, let's get a methodology in place, a standard approach by which we know how we could tackle data projects in, in a reliable way. Almost like, you know, we, we, we've figured out how to do application development in a reliable way. We should, there should not be this constant guessing of where do I start and how do I start? And I have no idea how much data, what the quality is. And, you know, we certainly haven't, you know, this has been around for decades now, the CRISP-DM methodology, uh, you know, and certainly we've expanded upon it as well as others uh, with, with additional enhancements, the CPMAI methodology in particular, we like to advocate. But if I could wave, if we could wave a magic wand, the idea would be, you know, let, so when you're hiring new people into your organization, there's an expectation for this is how we run data projects. When you're starting a new data project, like this is the way we do it. There should not be this 80 to 90% failure rate that we're seeing with AI and data projects. And the failures are a lot of times just like, again, the overestimating, the misalignment of expectations, the not knowing that they don't have the data they need or the quality is really bad. and not. It's like there should not be, it should not be as much of a question mark. So if I'm waving my wand. I'm like, let's get our methodology act together here, and we can we can have a sustainable wave. We won't be, you know, talking about oh the the glory days of what we thought was possible, right? Yeah, that's that's our magic wand that we would have a standard, you know, best practice methodology that's being adopted by organizations of all sorts. So that if you're hiring in, uh, you know, people already know the methodology and are versed in it. And also if you're moving within the organization that you have it as well, because we are all too often shocked that, you know, even people within their own organization does not, they, they don't understand the project. They might not have access to all of this. It's not written down. So they don't know what algorithms were selected. They don't know what data was used. And we're like, that shouldn't be. And it's all too often the case. So yes, that's our magic wand. <laughs> if we could wave that, then we would love for the methodologies to be adopted. Well, that's actually really a perfect answer for particular us, Harvard Data Science Review. We're trying to be a leader in anything data science and data science for everyone. I think the challenge you pose there is not just the methodology. It's really about data science education. How do you train people? How do you train this workforce to have the... I mean, there are lots of methods out there. And to be honest, and you know, as a statistician, I would say there are not too many different methods in statistics. There are a few general principles, like a bias-variance trade-off is always one of those things. Like, if you understand that, it goes 
long way, but most people may or may not recognize that in the particular situation. Oh, that's just a bias variance trade-off. I have learned that in textbook. I've seen some version of that, right? So I think a lot of things you're, you're talking about, I think it's really requires the community. Uh, if we can <laughs> wave the magical wand, Liberty and I, that we will be really focusing on, like, how do we get the people to do the, the kind of training? We don't really need to invent many more new methods. We have lots of already there. It's a question of how do you recognize when to apply which and how do you get the people get have that kind of experience. And uh, this is both for the academia, for the industry, for the government, for the NGO. And uh, But, you know, there are a lot of us to do. And I thank you both again um, on behalf of Liberty and myself as well as our uh, listeners for your incredible insights and all these uh, rich information. I hope that in the future we can we can do more of those than, than maybe when AI becomes so powerful, maybe at, at some time we can have uh, a, one that co-hosted by AI and a, a real human. One of you can take a break and one of us can take a break. But until then, thank you again for this incredible episode. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. Ron Schmelzer and Kathleen Walsh are hosts of the podcast AI Today. We encourage you to check it out wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to the Harvard Data Science Review podcast. Take care.